You are now listening to the Millennial Travel Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, podcast listeners? It's Matt coming to you with another episode of the Millennial Travel Podcast. Today, we're here with a legend, Rolf Potts. If you don't know who Rolf is yet, you are about to learn. But I really do mean that he has... Uh, achieved legendary status by paving the way for so many people to achieve long-term travel. But before I go on with that, I do need to let you know that Under 30 Experiences, our group travel community for young people ages 21 to 35, is kicking off our Black Friday sale Early with the launch of our Mexico trips, we're launching two new trips to Mexico. We predict that people are going to be traveling a little bit more close to home in 2021. So we have a trip to the Yucatan Peninsula uh, to a place called Merida, which you guys are really going to love, as well as a separate trip to Mexico City. I went to Mexico City about a year ago now and absolutely loved it. Uh, Ate and drank and saw history and Mexican wrestling matches and just had an absolute blast in that city. So uh, a lot to be learned about the amazing country that is just to the south of the United States. So if you want to check that out and get $200 off your trip, these trips are running next spring and summer 2021. Check out under30experiences.com and get set for Rolf Potts. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are here with none other than Rolf Potts of Vagabonding. Uh, Rolf lives in Kansas, of all places, which I'm excited to talk to him about. Uh, He has had his work appear in places like National Geographic Traveler. He recently taught nonfiction writing at Yale University and uh, also has another book that people might not know about in addition to Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term Oral Travel, but also Marco Polo Didn't Go There, Stories and Revelations from One Decade as a Postmodern travel writer, and you have a really nice podcast called Deviate that I was able to dive into a little bit. And uh, without further ado, Rolf, welcome. Nice to talk to you, Matt. No, thank thank you for, for being on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that the people who grew up in this digital nomad uh, type of era, I guess, when it was possible, they look to people like yourself, you in particular, as like this OG, this uh, this legendary figure. And then I was reading, I was like, wait, I think Rolf is still in his 40s. I'm 34. <laughs> and I'm like, this guy, it was, you were like some uh, mystical creature that I expected to be running around like when I, like when I interviewed Arthur Fromer, who was almost 90 years old. I'm like, wait a second. This guy was doing this like 20 years ago and before all the internet and all this crazy stuff. And uh, here he is. Do you get that a lot, Rolf? 
Yeah, sometimes. You know, it's funny. I wrote Vagabonding before there was such a concept as digital nomadism. I mean, I think actually people had been doing iterations of it for a while. But basically, social media and services like Skype made it possible in ways that I couldn't have even predicted in my book um, because those technologies didn't exist when I wrote it. But it's funny that philosophically, my book just sort of dovetailed really nicely with what people picked up uh, for the digital nomad movement. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, 20 years ago, I was in my 20s and my, my 40s. I'm pushing 50 now, which sounds ridiculous. But uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's funny how I was recently talking to somebody who discovered my book in 2014. And gosh, that book was 11 years old in 2014. So it's been a part of a conversation that I have been a part of for a long time. And I always enjoy talking about it because, um, you know, I wrote that book for a reason. And it has a lot of things that are really close to my heart and close to the way I live. So. No, that, that's great, Ralph. And, um, you know, it seems like the main difference that back in the day when you were a boy, no, not, not to go down like that, but when you took off for long-term travel, you didn't have a job, did you? I mean, or you took a hiatus or, but now we're all running around with our laptops and we have this luxury, which is both a gift and a curse. So I would love uh, to, first of all, to ask you, did you have a job back in the day when you just took off to travel? Because you're, again, the book is The Art of Long-Term World travel. So I would love to for you to elaborate really on the difference between all of a sudden you were you were time rich as I believe uh, you might have coined the term and you weren't running around like oh god I got to get to the next coffee shop or oh stressed out about the next internet cafe. Uh, yeah, well, Ralph, what do you think about that? Well, I funded my first big Asia travels by working as an English teacher in Korea, which was interesting. And it's something I recommend to anyone who thinks they might be good as a teacher, because not only did it earn me money for travel, but it, it gave me the experience of working in another culture, specifically Korea, which is very industrialized, very hardworking culture, but it's culturally different. You know, it's a place that is that individualism is sort of a pejorative word there, for example. And so it was really interesting to get to know that country. Now, I did what I in the book I call an anti-sabbatical. Basically, I saved a lot of money for travel, quit my teaching job and meant to just travel for as long as I could on the money. At the time, I was transitioning to travel writing work. And so like a lot of those bylines that I got came out of that experience. So I never was fully unemployed, but there was a time when the money I was making it from travel writing was so little at the time that it was good that I had this nest egg of money that was left over from travel. And I, I, I encourage people not to overthink it because even if you don't have a career that you can take on the road, if you can just save enough money, you know, just have – have this nest egg. There, there probably has to be a travel version of nest egg. It's not really a nest, but your your travel egg. Um, then you don't have to worry about work. Although people have found through the digital nomad mov mov moment, movement that they can combine work with travel in a way that is really pretty sustainable. No, that's interesting, Rolf. I'd love to to know. Uh, first of all, I didn't want people to think, oh yeah, this is just this unemployed guy for 10 years traveling around and wrote a book and made it big um, but good to good to know uh, and we can get into inspiration for your writing and, and stuff like that uh, as well but I'd love to know what you really think about this digital nomad 
moment, uh, uh, movement, and do you have any aversion to it when then you, maybe you visited a place like Chiang Mai, Thailand recently and hopped into a coffee shop and everybody's got their laptop open. You're like, oh, I could have just gone to the Lower East Side uh, in New York or I don't know, something in the middle of the country, uh, somewhere near the Power and Light District in Kansas City, right? Uh, and seen the same kind of scene. Do you have any aversion to that or think like, oh God, what did I, what did I start? <laughs> well, I, I think that sometimes there's sort of a performative aspect to digital nomadism that can be a little bit irritating sometimes. You know, I don't want to, you know, everybody's doing their best, everybody's trying their thing, but there's sort of the Instagram version of digital nomadism when you're you're sitting there in some beautiful vista with a laptop on your lap, and I'm thinking, oh, that's not where you do your work, is it? You know, that there's, there's I think that there can be a compulsion for people to perform a rosier version of this lifestyle than they actually live. And and sometimes I think the ragged edges of travel are what make it interesting. It can be the days where things aren't don't go the greatest and when you're not on a beautiful beach or you're not on a lake overlooking a mountain. Um when actually your 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 best your most instructive travel days can happen. Um as for you know the cafe full of people who may as well be in Brooklyn, um I think that's a little bit spe specific that's sort of ghettoized. I think that there are certain Places even before there were digital nomads, travelers tended to cluster together. And so, if you, if if one is irritated by a bunch of people who look like they could be in Williamsburg working uh, cheek by jowl in a coffee shop in Chiang Mai, well, then just go to go to Pai or Chiang Rai or go to Laos or someplace. Go to a place where it's not as irritating. Um, I know that there's places. Bali is a big place these days um, for digital nomads. There's countries that actually give special digital nomad visas, uh, and that's all great. Um, but again, I'm, the, the ethic that I outline in Vagabonding is really a, an ethic of openness and curiosity. And uh, it's not necessarily about taking your job on the road and, and, and being a big shot, but it's about learning every day and making every day special and different. And if you can integrate that in a digital nomad way with work, then that's great. But I try to encourage people not to, not to worry too much about the air quotes lifestyle of digital nomadism and be open to making mistakes, be open to trying new things, uh, and being open to the best parts of travel, which are not always uh, smooth-edged things. No, that, that's a really good, yeah, really great answer. And uh, you, you touched on something there where you kind of said, hey, go a little bit more off the beaten path if you're trying not to be, uh, you know, bump into too many Instagram models in, you know, where, in wherever, right? And uh do you have a sense of longing or nostalgia for the old days? Or I forget where I read this. You were having this conversation of, I think, having the conversation of what was Asia like when it was really Asia. Or you hear, you know, Phil Knight went to China in the 70s when he graduated from school and to see what that was like because that was real you know what's your take on this kind of the way people travel for nostalgic almost like they want to go back in time does that happen to you i'd love to hear your take yes uh, yes and no and, and this is something that has always been there i think uh, i in vagabonding i quoted thomas merton who was in asia in maybe the 50s or 60s people said 
have you seen the real Asia? And he says, well, it's, it's all real as far as I can see, you know, that, that basically people have always, especially since modernity has gone global, people think that modernity somehow makes cultures less than authentic, when in fact, you know, unless people are being forced to go to fast food restaurants and drink espressos on the street, if it's their choice, then and they choose to live a more modern lifestyle, then that's that's their thing to do. Now, I've been traveling, I've been vagabonding for 25 years at least now, and so there are certain things. For example, when the smartphone dictated how people travel, it was a little bit irritating, just because people were using their smartphones. I thought way too much. They're depending on them too much. They weren't really asking people for recommendations. They they would be in Poland or El Salvador and not talk to any local people. They would just be going completely off their phones. Now, I don't want to be the, the cranky old guy yelling, get off my lawn, right? You know, that I, I want to appreciate travel with the technologies that people have grown up with. Um, so I don't want to just sort of be blanket against smartphones, but there, it wasn't that much harder to travel before there were smartphones, before a smartphone map could show you where to go or before a smartphone Yelp app could tell you where to eat, right? So uh, I just try to encourage people to to cut what I call the electronic umbilical cord and just let things happen and discover things on their own. Because in a way, it's the difference between the consumer experience of travel and the more organic, find your own way pilgrim experience of, of travel when you're not really sure what's going to happen next and you're learning in interesting new ways. And you don't always have your phone giving you the best recommendation of the 10 best things to do here and there. Um, so yeah, I think I think travel has always been in tension be between those more traditional ways that people used to travel and the newer, easier, but sort of more sterilized ways of travel that it is possible to do, for example, with technologies like smartphones. No, that, that's really cool. And, um, you know, when you talk about, actually, could you give an example of uh, maybe a, a time where you just got completely lost or off, went down the wrong way or who knows what? Because you have to have tons of examples of what you're illustrating. Yeah, sure. Well, um, one one of my favorite examples is that I was in, I, I went, I took the ferry from Spain to Morocco. Uh, and then I wanted to go to the, the town of Chefchaouen, which is this famous blue city um, that travelers have been visiting since the hippie era. The problem is that Chefchaouen is a transliteration. When you see it on the page, it's a transliteration of basically it's a French transliteration of the Arabic. And so I didn't know how to pronounce it. And so I thought it was Chefchaouen. And so I told the taxi driver at Tangier, I said, oh, I, I want to go to Chefchaouen. And he's here, Tetuan? And I'm like, sure. And well, Tetuan and Chefchaouen are completely different towns. And so instead of, so I was amazed by how cheap it was. Instead of a two and a half hour drive to Chefchaouen, it was a one hour drive to Tetuan. I wandered around for an hour with the wrong map until I realized that I was not in Chefchaouen. And then I made the decision to just stay there. And it was one of my favorite decisions because basically I had gone to Chefchaouen with all these expectations. Um, I had no expectations at all for Tetuan, so I was able to see it with completely fresh eyes, and I was able to just capitalize on my mistake, and every single thing I found there was a discovery, and it was Berber market day, the Berber tribes were in to sell their wares. People in, in Tetuan, or people in Chefchaouen are used to travelers, they're not used to travelers in Tetuan, so a lot of people took an interest in me in a way that they, I later went to Chefchaouen, and it wasn't as fun, you know, it was more comfortable from a backpacker, Western backpacker perspective, perspective, but it wasn't as much of an adventure as this complete mistake that I made. And so sometimes I think we, we're hard on ourselves as travelers when we mess up in that kind of situation. 
we feel bad and we try to correct ourselves when in fact, well, why not just see it as a gift? Um, and so in that situation, I was able to enjoy having completely screwed up and gone to the wrong city and I was able to discover that city on its own terms. And it's one of my favorite memories of Morocco. That, that's awesome. And, and if people are trying to kind of cut the cord on their smartphone, right? If they're trying to say, oh God, you mean I have to go somewhere and I'm not gonna sign up for that package, uh, that wireless package? How can they, like, do you suggest people buy a map? <laughs> like, do maps still, are maps still sold? Uh, how could you walk people through, like, really, what should they be doing if they're not using their, their smartphone? How can they get lost once in a while? Yeah, well, I mean, there's different ways you can do this. One is to just turn off your smartphone or leave it at your hotel or your guest house or your hostel. And then just don't be dependent upon it. But another thing is that, sure, take a map, get some directions, and book your hostel when you get there. It's time travel, but look, it's time travel back to the year 2004, right? You know, that, that, that basically you're not using ancient magical techniques, you're using the same techniques people have always used. And so, um, yeah, I really think that what greater adventure, especially for the, the Gen Z millennial people coming up right now, what greater adventure than to just sort of go old school and use a paper map. It's a great way to go, and it works pretty well. And if you get lost, guess what? You're lost, and you get to discover a new place of, of the city or the region in a way you hadn't expected. And guess what? People usually live through being lost. People usually live through going to a restaurant they'd never heard of before. And so, and I'm not saying people have to do it. I think people have gotten really comfortable with smartphones, but sometimes your smartphone can sort of be a, a filter that makes it feel like you haven't really left home. You know, you're texting your friends back home, you're checking your social media feeds, you're getting rec restaurant recommendations without really talking to anybody in the city where you are. So if you're willing to take that leap, sure, leave your smartphone completely at home, use a paper map, and I can pretty much guarantee you it'll be more memorable than if you had had your smartphone telling you to turn left, turn right, eat at this place, um, you know, go to this, attraction so yeah so I, I think we're in a great position where we can use a smartphone if we want but we don't have to and there's actually a lot of great things that can happen using a paper map or just asking the dude on the corner hey where's the plaza oh it's this way oh there's there's a festival today oh i didn't i had no idea so um i think the old style of travel is still there even as we use these new tools of travel that's awesome and embracing those serendipitous moments that's uh yeah that's that's amazing and, and Rolf, you said something interesting about uh maybe not talking to your friends at home the entire time you're away and burnout is such a huge uh topic and let's call it a disease at this point. Um, I'm sure medical, do yeah, I'm sure medical doctors will uh, put it into a book as such at some point here. But when people, when people are burned out and they go away on vacation and then they never really disconnect, um, what, you know, I, I guess I'll ask you in your travel style, uh, first of all, do you ever feel burned out from writing and everything that you do? And then are you able to fully recover when you go away? And do you actually disconnect? Those are, those are good questions. I think sometimes the burnout for me and for a lot of travelers who are moving maybe from a place like the United States to a place like Asia, 
Um, the burnout comes early because you're still sort of in micromanagement mode. You're still thinking about having your entire day planned because efficiency is so much more important at home. On the road, who cares? You know, if, if you don't go to the place where you plan to go, well, who cares? You'll just hang out where you are. That, that in a way, one of the gifts of travel is not having to be efficient, not having to be micromanaged. Um, and there are forms of travel burnout, but oftentimes it's people who burn out on travel are people who are trying to do too much. And because one of the gifts of travel is that if you like it in Tuscany, hey, you can stay there for two weeks. You don't have to do it in two days and then go to Rome the next week or go to Switzerland the next week. You can you can set your own recess schedule, as I say, in, in vagabonding, and you can really change your plans entirely because at home, plans keep you employable. They keep you efficient. But on the road, if you discover something that blows your mind that you never knew about in your research, why not just let that enrich your life? Why not just slow down and enjoy yourself a little bit? So, um, yeah, I, I, I like to think that I, I'm, not over, I'm not burned out by travel, but I think that there's no perfect way to travel, that sometimes I am, writing does get me down a little bit, or I do get a little bit tired of too many bus trips, or I don't really like this city or that city. And so I just have to correct course a little bit. I think one thing about travel is that you're all, even when you're really good at it and really experienced at it, you're still improvising. You're still finding solutions to problems you wouldn't have known existed. And that's part of the challenge, but also part of the fun of travel. It's interesting, Ralph, when I asked the question, I was thinking about work in general, just burnout from work. And you answered it in the way of burnout from travel. But then what I realized is your work, your, your vacation is your vocation, as they say. Uh, you are a travel writer, or, or that's one of the things that you do. So I'd love to know, because you are uh, in this industry in some way, shape, or form, do you sometimes just say, oh, God, I don't want to travel. I want to be in my house in Kansas and not think about travel and maybe just, I don't know what you do, uh, not to stereotype, but I did read it was 30 acres. So maybe you just want to go outside and uh, work the land. Does that happen to you? Absolutely. I mean, I have sort of have a relationship to my 30 acres in Kansas that I don't have to most places in the world, even though it's my part of Kansas would never be a tourist destination, but it's a part that I have developed a relationship with over the course of many years. And so oftentimes I'll miss my home when I'm in a place that's much sexier. You know, I'll be in Indonesia or Switzerland and I'll sort of miss the simplicity of my home. I think, you know, even though I'm a travel writer and it is my vocation to be working when I'm on the road, people forget that they don't have to bring their work attitude towards travel. I think that separation between work, I mean, there's this idea that there's work and then there's like sipping a Mai Tai on a beach and never the twain shall meet. When in fact, uh, oftentimes people, when they first start traveling, they're still in work mode and they're trying to be super efficient and they want to jam 10 sightseeing sites in Paris in the day instead of just hanging out and drinking wine in a cafe, right? Well, it's, it's Paris either way. If you go to 10 things in Paris, that's great. But Parisians don't go to 10 places in Paris. Par Parisians sit and drink ca wine and cafe all day if they want to. So I think getting out of that mindset, even if you are a travel writer, you can really bring an unhealthy attitude of work towards travel if you think, oh, well, I'm not really going to experience Bogota, Colombia unless I see everything, unless I see the 10 things on my bucket list. Well, that's sort of a work-oriented attitude, you know, that maybe you'll you'll go to a, 
a barbecue place that you would discover by accident. You'll make some friends and, and pretty soon you're playing Frisbee and, and, you know, going to somebody's wedding. You know, there's so many ways that are outside of the box that work conditions us into that it's, that it's good sometimes to give yourself permission as a traveler, um, not to be as goal oriented as you are during work, because sometimes it's not the goals of travel, but the accidents of travel that make it so much fun and so memorable. Yeah, yeah, Ralph, when you were saying before about taking the boat from Spain to Morocco, I thought, geez, I bet people just fly fly at this point. You know, they don't go, right? The This kind of slow food movement, which probably originated in Italy, now you're hearing more about the slow travel movement, actually, especially since COVID, where you're not just bouncing from city to city. When you hear people are going on a, you know, little trip or road trip, wherever in the road, in the United States, they're really taking their time, they're doing it slowly, they're staying away from other people, etc. Um, so I'd love to know how long you take off when you go and travel and how, how do you move? Are you taking the, the scenic route all the time? Uh, would, yeah, would love for you to elaborate. Well, it really depends. And that's one great thing about vagabonding is that there's no, you know, vagabonding isn't idealized when it's one year. Um, because some people have amazing trips that are six weeks or that are five years, you know. So um, years ago, my first vagabonding trip was 26 years ago. I lived in a van. I thought it was going to be my last. I thought I was going to scratch my travel itch and be over with it. That was eight months, um, and that was great. But I did two and a half years around Asia. I haven't done trips that are that long since, I don't think, that that um, I went to Asia last year for about four months. But that was great, you know, that that it wasn't like I was comparing it against my Asia travels of two years, that I took what I could and I made it happen. You know, I'm older than I was 20 years ago, of course, and so I have more money. Like I can, I can, I was in Mozambique a couple winters ago, I rented a pickup truck. I, I couldn't have done that as a dirtbag backpacker. I would have ridden chicken buses and chicken buses are interesting in their own way. But having a four-wheel drive pickup allowed me to see parts of Mozambique in southeastern Africa um, that I wouldn't have seen on a chicken bus. And so one fun thing about developing as a traveler is that you see things in different ways and different perspectives. And that oftentimes being in your 40s as a traveler will give you perspectives that you didn't have in your 20s. And you might have more energy in your 20s. You know, I'll probably never see so many sunrises as I did when I was in my 20s. Sometimes it's nice to go to bed when I'm in my 40s. But um, yeah, you have you have different goals, you have different uh, values, and um, and so you follow that accordingly. I think it's it's good to allow yourself to change the rules of travel. If you're really into partying when you're twenties, well, you can be into hiking in your thirties. It doesn't matter. You're not being a hypocrite. You're just uh, following different sides of yourself and different interests. And so. Um, you know, COVID means that I'm spending a lot more time in Kansas than I had previously planned on doing. This morning, my girlfriend and I were looking at uh, hiking trails in Kansas. We like hiking in exotic places, but why not hiking in our own backyard? So not as many mountains, but there are literally hiking trails in Kansas that are, you know, 50, 100 miles long that I'm going to discover for the first time, even though they're not that far from where I live. So it's fun to be flexible in how I approach travel as I get older. That's great. And I heard you say somewhere, Rolf, that uh, you would, one of the reasons that you enjoy living in Kansas is that the cost of living is so low. And, uh, you know, now it, it's funny, things that 
people have been doing forever, like saving money and living well below their means, are now popping up as entire industries and movements and, uh, you know, right? People have lived in vans for a long time before hashtag van life was popular, right? Or uh, now we have the... Uh, FI community, financial independence, or um, I don't know. There's a, you know the, there's a bunch of these now where people are are really kind of having a actually really on a more mass scale this type of awakening. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on affording to travel because first of all, I think everybody listening knows that it's not easy to make it as a travel writer and you kind of have to make some decisions and, and you certainly did when you were young, as you just said, riding chicken buses and instead of renting the four by four. So I'd love your take on uh, how people can afford to travel uh, more often and travel for longer. Yeah, well, there's there's two geographical aspects to this. One is you travel to cheaper places. One reason that my earliest international travels are in Asia, it's partly connected to my fascination with Asian culture, but just as much, if not more at the time, it was connected to the fact that it was so much cheaper than in a place like Thailand or India. I could travel, you know, compared to Europe, you know, I'd get five days out of my budget for one day in Europe. Uh, and that probably still holds true. That, that really, if you, especially when you're a younger traveler, if you start at places that cost less than, than your big European capitals, nothing against European capitals, I love those places, but if you go to India or Indonesia or Thailand or Egypt, then you're going to be going to a place where your daily expenses are literally less than in a city like New York or Los Angeles. Another thing, uh, another term that you, I thought you might throw it out, but you didn't, uh, geo-arbitrage, if you know geo-arbitrage. Sure. Um, what I didn't know that's what it was, but that's what my Kansas choice is, is that I'm usually gone from Kansas, but it doesn't cost that much to maintain a house here. When I'm here, uh, if you use beer as a as like a, a metric for how much a place costs, you know, you can get a, a glass of beer for a dollar at, at many bars near where I live. Um, I don't drink I don't drink beer as much as I used to. I got a pitcher of beer in Myanmar for 40 cents once. But um, <laughs> in fact, I did a podcast episode about this, that there are um, – resources now online that can help you find like there's New York and Los Angeles have always sort of been seen as places that are maybe pricing people out San Francisco but then there's places like Austin and Minneapolis and Portland that also became popular but well now they're pricing people out too but the question that a lot of these online services um, are, are asking themselves including the woman that I interviewed for my podcast is well, why do you want to go to Oregon? Is it mountains? Well, there's great mountains in Tennessee. And guess what? You can live for a third of the price in Tennessee. Are you there because it's always warm in Los Angeles? Well, you know, this part of coastal Georgia is is warm um, year round and you also have kayaking space. So basically um, organizing your professional life in such a way that if it is fairly portable, why pay out the nose to live in downtown San Francisco when you can live in a place like Idaho or North Carolina or Kansas or, or places that maybe aren't as sexy but are very fascinating. And so part of 
the joy of being a traveler who's based in Kansas is that I can really apply that vagabonding mindset to my own home. There's, you know, nobody's knocking, nobody's killing themselves to go to tra to travel to Kansas, but I can discover places that are literally off the beaten path that are really fun and really rewarding and really surprising in that good old fashioned traveler way. And I can save that money as a traveler. So, so to, just to recap, two big tools I've had is one, I don't spend much at home because I'm based in Kansas. Two, I don't spend a lot on the road because I go to cheaper places like India or Thailand. That, that's great. And um, Ralph, you, you mentioned that you love the simplicity of being at home in Kansas, especially when you're in sexier places. Uh, I think you said Indonesia or, or who knows where, right? But uh, I'd love to know, first of all, if you were 30 right now, do you think you would appreciate... Uh, Kansas as much you would have grown up in this Instagram culture a little bit more and I bet a lot of people are listening and maybe even scoffing and be like oh I've seen the world how can I go and live in Kansas for pebbles you know what I mean what uh, yeah what what is it about you know that we have so much overstimulation in our society today that we need the flashy places and you got to spend a lot of money and all this stuff but take us could you take us to kansas and tell us tell us what you really enjoy about and how as a traveler you're able to truly appreciate it yeah well kansas is i grew up in kansas so it's close to my heart my family my parents literally live next door my sister and her family live about a mile away so it was an easy decision to make uh, in part because and this is, this is a lesson I learned from travel. You know, you go to India or Vietnam or various parts of South America and families will pool their resources. Um, and so my nephews sort of grew up with their crazy traveler uncle not very far away when he wasn't traveling. And, and at the same time, they can help me, you know, fix up my house or keep an eye on it when I'm gone. And so um, it's hard to know about, um, it's hard to imagine myself as a 30-year-old. I've sort of been under the impression that um, young people are pretty sophisticated these days. Sure that there's the um, the Instagram culture, but also they're not, and again, I, I'm making a generalization. Maybe I'm being a little half glass full about the younger generation, but they're uh, probably more skeptical than my generation about the appeal of the San Francisco's and New York's and Portland. Not because they're not sexy and, and wonderful towns. I like all of those places, particularly New York, but they know that it's sort of a sucker's game to an extent, you know, that you're going to be spending all your money just to make rent, you know, that you're going to be working an extra 30 hours a week just so that you can keep that horrible little apartment, you know, in Park Slope or wherever <laughs> you're living. And, and so I think that the skepticism that is born of certain factors of the younger generation can inform some smart decisions at the same rate. You're, yeah. Instagram culture that in a way, the things that you see on travel Instagram, are sort of so idealized they're not even real. You know, it's so beautiful you don't even see that when you're traveling. Um, and so there's a sort of fiction that is borne out by these platforms, and it creates people who perform their lives. And that's you know, um, younger people are probably more likely than my generation to perform their lives to sort of have a happier version of their own life on Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform they use. One thing that travel can give you is real life. And so I don't know if this is part of my argument for Kansas, but one thing about unplugging and just traveling is that real life, even if you don't have a perfect six pack and even if the beach isn't empty, is better than whatever you see on Instagram because it is real life, because it's pretty cool and that you can enjoy this place and it's, it's three dimensional instead of two dimensional. And then a the thing about uh, Kansas too is that 
you know, unlike a place like Tennessee, it doesn't have mountains. Unlike a place like Georgia, it doesn't have, uh, it's cold in the winter and it's not warm. But it's super cheap, it's super friendly, um, I have good neighbors, and I'm not here year-round, except during a pandemic, I'm not here year-round. You know, it's, it's a place where I can go, um, you know, there's not, it's, it's a rural area, um, I don't have much to steal, and even if I did, nobody really thinks to, to break into a house in the middle of nowhere. Um, that it's just, it's, it's about that simplicity, and it's about, I'm going to stay in a place that you sort of have to work hard to find its most interesting aspects, but it gives me freedom. It frees me up to live a lifestyle. Four months, last year I was in Indonesia and uh, Georgia and uh, in Sri Lanka, right? And so basically it doesn't, it doesn't make me beholden to this place 12 months a year. And in fact, more so than a more expensive city, I can live here half time and I can still consider it home, but I'm also in Mozambique. I'm also in Namibia or Argentina. And it just gives me more options. And, and part of that is not being rich, but about using what money I have to make what feel to me more strategic decisions about where to live and where to travel. That's cool. And uh, I might actually title the episode something to do with performing your life, which is really, it's really interesting. And it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of the people who are performing their life are doing, you know, what you see on Instagram is never somebody's real life, of course, but they're also trying to sell something so that they can continue to have this lifestyle and be able to travel. And um, yeah, you just hope that people are doing it authentically, I guess, is is what I would say. Um, but uh, yeah, shoot, I had I had something else that I wanted to, to say uh, or ask you on that. Um, but no, just just super interesting when when you start to talk about being in a place that's uh, so simple, and you kind of wonder, oh, what is there to do, right? Like I get, I've been so stir crazy uh, here in COVID, and I'm in Austin, and I'm actually like, oh, geez, this place is kind of it's gotten expensive and a little bit crowded, and I haven't even been here all that long. Um, but actually, yeah, that's what I was going to mention is you said a lot of these millennials uh, and Gen Z, it will be interesting to see what they do, that they are the ones starting these movements of, oh, I was the, I was the Google employee who in San Francisco, I realized that I'd be spending, still be spending three quarters of my paycheck on rent. So I decided to live in a van in the parking lot. And you see these stories like, baseball players embracing living in an RV, right? Um, and I hope, I, I've just had so many people contact me and a lot of these are friends from college and people who went on to LA and San Francisco and New York to have big jobs and be all stressed out. But I've had numerous people say, I just want to chop wood for a while and just go into the woods and do nothing. And these people also travel quite a bit and have their their fair uh, their fair time of you know stimulate overstimulation and and all that. Um, but when you're looking for stuff to do around town or around Kansas, you said you're going to check out some hiking trails. Uh, you I think you said you had a relationship with the area or the land. Obviously, you have family there. Um, but when you need something to do. Do you just say, okay, I'm going to go travel? Or are you like, no, I'm just going to hang out and do nothing because there's a lot of value in that too. 
Yeah, well, and, and sometimes doing nothing is just sort of doing something counterintuitive. You know, I can, I can I have 30 acres, so I can go on a very quiet walk in my land. And in a way, it's nothing, but it's also being re- very receptive in the way of a traveler to my own immediate environment. And, and that's a good thing to do. I also do a ton of reading while I'm here. Um, and um, actually, I, I've been reading Kindle a lot more now because I take a lot of notes and you can use the highlight function. But sometimes doing nothing. Actually, I read when I travel a lot, too. Um is, uh, yeah, just sort of being more contemplative. I mean, there's two things, there's two ways of sort of getting in tune with an older way of being. One is walking, you know. I like I like running sometimes too, but walking, just, just sort of walking in a slow, deliberate way. Walking allows you to have different thought patterns and if you're just sitting at home or if you're looking at your device. Uh, and then reading, you know, reading too. Uh, ideally in, an, in a non-connected way where you're not distracted where you're really conversing with men of other centuries in a certain way. You're reading you're, you're reading a novel and you're sort of getting into the consciousness of those characters in, in a very empathetic way. Or you're reading a book about history or travel and you're going to different eras of history or in different parts of the world and it's an imaginative act. And so that's one big thing is that often when I'm at home, I have a much simpler life, but that involves, I'm, I'm more monk-like in a certain sense. I, I'm given over to study and, and simple exercise and simpler social relationships. I probably meet fewer people while I'm here. Uh, and then sometimes just these surprising short road trips, um, going out and finding a new restaurant. I found a great dri- um, dri- uh, drive-in. Oh, um, yeah, Drive-In Cinema. There's a Drive-In Cinema about an hour from here. I went and saw E.T. there about a month ago, and it was so awesome. And it sort of became its own adventure. It was just sort of an accidental adventure. Um, and so I think it's important not to set limits and not to get into the FOMO thing, you know, that you're missing out on something, and that some places are, air quotes, better than others. When, in fact, what there is to find wherever you are you may as well just find ways to fall in love with whoever you are, because if you're worried that another place might be better, then you're really selling your own life short, you know, because eventually you'll be dead, right? And then if you spend half your life worrying me, you wishing you were someplace else, then that's a waste of your life. So one part of the vagabonding ethic is really find ways to, to fall in love with the place you are, even if it means just being quiet and going for a walk and trying to see this place in a new way. That's great. Well, I think people should absolutely read the book and start to understand long-term travel. I think that's those are the key words because then you have the time. And uh, again, we come from this, this culture where we want to go and see a million things in seven days. But uh, that, yeah, that doesn't seem to be uh, what you're talking about what, whatsoever. Um, yeah, that, that's, really, that's really awesome, Rolf. Um, I wanted to to ask you how you select places to go and see. Um, over tourism is such a a huge topic, and uh, we try to, of course, on this podcast, encourage people to travel as sustainably as possible. Um, but if you're not just you know looking up what the number one place on TripAdvisor in the world to go <laughs> to go is, uh, or scrolling, I mean, people. I should stop dogging on Instagram culture so much, but people literally will just look for places that look pretty and and just go to them, which is mm. which is interesting in its own right. Um, but there are people who just try like Instagram is their their guidebook as well. Um, yeah, so I'll try not to pass judgment because I'm sure that would be helpful if they're if they're doing it for again authentically. Um, but how do you select uh, places to go? 
it's different every time. And I, I touch on this a little bit in the book Vagabonding in that in a way it doesn't matter what your motivation for going to a place is. You know, maybe you love uh, rugby, right? And, and they have great rugby sevens in Fiji. And so you're going to go to Fiji and you're going to check out the rugby culture there. Well, odds are you'll find some pretty awesome stuff in Fiji that has nothing to do with rugby that is going to blow your mind. You're going to meet beautiful, uh, be on beautiful beaches. You're going to meet really cool people. And, and suddenly... It doesn't matter what brings you there. What matters is what happens when you when you show up there. Like I went to Sumatra last year because when I in my first travel through Asia, I missed Indonesia. I wanted to go to Indonesia, but I love Thailand and Laos and Cambodia so much that I never got to Indonesia. Well, 20 years later I went there and my god, it was just it was just amazing. It was it was super inexpensive. I spent the entire month on the island of Sumatra and not even on the entire island of Sumatra. Like I was on about a third of Sumatra, and every day was a mind-blowingly um, satisfying day. And so um, that was a trip that was connected to my past. I'm trying to think in previous years, like I had a friend who had a cabin in, in Argentina, and so that was a good pretext. My brother-in-law, had a, he's a scientist, he had a research fellowship to Uruguay, so I decided, well, I'll, I'll travel this winter in South America. So um, I think that some travelers can overthink this when in fact it doesn't matter. You can go to some place for the dumbest, most superficial reason in the world. You can go to New Zealand because you like Lord of the Rings. You can go to Dubrovnik because you like Game of Thrones. And when you show up, you'll you'll find 10 things that have nothing to do with Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones and that are just gonna completely make you happy that you went there. Um, so um, I would say so oftentimes the top 10 lists are the worst reasons to go to a place. And if you don't, if you do go to the number one TripAdvisor place, if you're in Venice and it's full of crowds, well, there's Italy is a big country. You don't have to stay in Venice. You can actually go to two towns over and probably it's more authentically Italian anyway. So if you give yourself permission to change your plans, then it doesn't matter what your plans are because you're, you're always smarter after you've started traveling than when you planned your travels, that you're, Plan your travels, you're just this guy in the underwear in Austin or Kansas, you know, making making plans. Suddenly you're on the road, you're meeting people, they're excited about having gone places, you're talking to local people. And if you don't give yourself permission to change your plans, then you're sort of selling yourself short. So that's a good travel tool to have as a traveler is the ability to change your mind and try something different. That's great. Well, Rolf, would you like to do some rapid fire questions before we wrap up? Sure, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ralph, you didn't. You said you didn't drink too much beer these days, but uh, if you could go to one bar tomorrow, where would it be? Oh man, that's that's a good question. It's it's funny. Um, the the first thing that popped in my head was this bar called McGlinchey's in Philadelphia. We're at a really great time in 1994 when I was living in a van. I went there a few years ago, and it's like one of the only bars left in. Philadelphia, where you can still smoke. Like oh, they grandfathered geez. in the smoking rule. Actually, that doesn't interest me at all, right? Um, so, so a better answer is probably a Korean soju tent, because when I was living in Korea, Korea is a is a fantastic drinking culture. Um, drink, drinking is sort of the social lubricant that makes meetings work. And after the bars close, there's these orange soju tents where you can get a little bit of snack and a little bit of soju, which is sort of the Korean vodka, and it, I've just had so many nice, high-spirited times in the middle of the night in Korea, and that's a place I'd go back to in an instant. Awesome. Okay, if you were going to take six months, a good chunk of time, but you just wanted to stay in one country, 
and travel around, where would it be? Well, uh, this is going to sound uh, lame, but United States. It's funny. I've been all over the world. The United States is where I took my first vagabonding trip, and I still rank it really high. the The American West by itself could could keep you busy for six months and never and never make you uh, feel like you've done the same thing tr- twice. Um, there's uh, there's so many places, but if I was to to redo it, maybe like a place like South Africa or China, like a big country in a place that I've been, but not really. Like I've, I'm under traveled in China and South Africa, even France and and uh, places like Germany or Italy. So I realize I'm waffling on this question. So my final answer, Alex, is um, <laughs> as a Jeopardy reference, uh, is is Italy. I think I think I would spend those six months in Italy. I was supposed to be there right now. I was supposed to go there this summer. COVID. Uh, canceled those plans i've been to italy before but never properly so i've never really spent time in tuscany i've never really spent time in rome or naples or sicily and i think italy would be my place that's my final answer got it thank thank you for that and i'm thinking of the matt damon movie uh right now where he go oh mr ripley have you seen this where oh yeah pretty pretty that's a great travel movie yeah for sure i'm i'm uh yeah picturing you going over there and Getting Mr. Ripley's son back from him on the on the beach and wherever he was, I don't know the Amalfi Coast or something. That was a beautiful, yeah. The sights of that movie were amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, to pick up the pace on the rapid, uh, for me to pick up the pace, you can elaborate as as long as you want. I love that you said United States. It's hot right now. A lot of people can't travel uh, abroad or no one will accept us if we have a U.S. passport, uh, amongst other reasons. What's your favorite U.S. national park? Well, I'm very fond of Olympic National Park in the Pacific Northwest um, on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. Um, And I've been to so many national parks, and they're all so great. But Olympic National Park is a place that really, really blew my mind when I was 18 years old. Um, I went. I, I was thinking about going to college in Oregon. I went out there, and there's Olympic National Park has some parts on the coast, so you can actually find wilderness beaches that are very isolated and full of giant logs and beautiful sunsets. And you can also go inland and climb mountains inside Olympic National Park and find clover that is as big as your hand. Like it's a temperate rainforest. And there's more, most rainforests are in the tropics, but this has so much rain and it's so lush. Um, And it was like going to another planet. It was like being in a Star Wars movie. And, And keep in mind, this is influenced by my experiences when I was 18. But it remains really, I would say, my favorite national park in the United States, Olympic National Park in Washington State. That's awesome. And uh, Rolf, if you had one piece of travel gear that you could not travel without, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I I went around the world with no luggage almost exactly 10 years ago. I went around the world with nothing but just the things in my pockets. Um, And so I've learned that you don't really need any, you know, one thing to be, um, to have a great time. So, yeah, like shoes, like good shoes. That those are super important. And and really, I'm I'm not a fan of smartphones. I think they can really get in the way. But if you were to bring one thing, I think bringing a smartphone gives you more options than those two extra sets of clothes. You know that you can take a small backpack, but with the smartphone, you can put books on it. You can you can uh, check the weather on it. You can text your mom. You can make some plans. If you can 
strike a balance between using it constructively and not using it at all. The smartphone is such a great tool for travel. I have to remind myself sometimes, because again, that get off my lawn part of myself wants to tell people not to use the smartphone. When in fact, the smartphone gives you so many options that you don't really need to pack much else besides your toothbrush and your extra underwear. It really does. I'm thinking about when I went away to Europe in college and I didn't bring my cell phone because it was no use. I just left it at home, but I still grew up in some type of cell phone era because I didn't know my mother's phone number. So I was like, oh no, how do I, how do I call mom on, on her cell phone? So uh, yeah, a lot, lot has changed. Um, Ralph, this has been this has been really fun. Uh, you had so many interesting answers that my brain got going so much. It was like I couldn't figure out what to ask next or which way to, to bring things. But uh, this is this is awesome. Of course, you have again. You have two books: Vagabonding and Uncommon Guide for the Art of Long Term World Travel. Uh, and then your second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There: Stories and Revelations from one decade as a postmodern travel writer. Ralph, do you have any other books or, or uh, would you like to write another one? Uh, well, I have, I have a book that came out last year called Souvenir, which oh, okay. is exactly about that. It's about the souvenir ritual that travelers go through. Um, and I have some other books. It's too soon to say what they're going to be yet. I, I always have about 10 books I want to write and then then uh, fate eventually narrows that down. But I do have my podcast, Deviate, which is a fun creative outlet, especially during the pandemic. Um, and that is helping me scratch my curiosity itch, if not my travel itch right now. So that's another, another fun thing uh, that I've been doing. This is awesome, Will. And uh, again, your, your website is ralphpots.com. Uh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. I just checked that URL. And uh, Ralph, anything you wanted to leave the readers or listeners with? Uh, no, just that I encourage everybody to travel. It's not as hard or as expensive or dangerous as you think. And the first step starts when you decide you're going to do it, even if it means two or three years when uh, the pandemic is long gone. So uh, good luck on the road, everyone. Awesome. Thank you very much. Podcast listeners, did you enjoy that episode? If so, I would love for you to check out the Under 30 Experiences blog and the Ultimate Guide to Solo Travel. This is an 8,000-word article that I have penned. Uh, we could call it a prequel to my book, The Millennial Travel Guidebook, Escape More, Spend Less, and Make Travel a Priority in Your Life. But it tells you everything that you need to know, not in as much depth as the 55,000-word book, but 8,000 words is no joke. And uh, everything from how to find uh, free places to stay, cheap flights, um, best places in the world to travel, communities to get involved with. I really spent a lot of time on this and I think you're going to love it. So check out under30experiences.com slash blog. And uh, if you like that, you'll probably be interested in my book, the Millennial Travel Guidebook, which you can find on millennialtravelguidebook.com.